Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. Uh, we are so excited that you chose to be with us this morning to celebrate with us the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, so thanks for being here, and we hope uh, uh, that it is something that benefits you very much. Uh, one, one warning. Uh, I need to post a kind of a warning at the beginning of our time this morning. If, if at any time in the service you experience disorientation or a sudden um, sense of nausea, uh, it's not something in the air, it's my shirt. So avert your gaze and then come back and we should be okay. I polled my children this morning about the shirt. One of them said, you look like an Easter egg. The other one said, ugh. But Ashley told me it was okay, so I went with it. Uh, so we, you know, make fun of me later, whatever that is. Uh, this is the last week uh, in a series that we've been doing on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew. And so this is not necessarily the classic resurrection text. However, there, are, you know, I don't, I'm not really sure if there's a passage in the Scripture that's not a classic resurrection text. And so we're going to finish up this series this morning looking at Matthew uh, chapter 7, verses 17 through 28. And so if you have a Bible, you'd like to turn there. Actually, verse 29, 17 through 29. If you have a Bible and you'd like to turn there, you can do that. If not, we have it printed for you in your worship folder. There are Bibles in your pews. It will also be on the screen behind me. We try to make it as easy for everyone as possible. So let's read along together uh, in this really frightening um, but overwhelming, astonishing passage here at the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount which is this big chunk of teaching about his vision for the kingdom of God in Matthew's gospel. So beginning in verse 17, Jesus says, Every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came. And the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. And when Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes this is god's word Uh, what we've been saying all along as we've been studying this this sermon that jesus gives to us here is that jesus is trying to help us along in the immigration process of becoming citizens in the kingdom of heaven he's talking about the kingdom of heaven Uh, and, and an immigrant is someone who someone of a particular nationality who comes to be a permanent resident in a foreign country And becoming a Christian, then, what we're trying to see means so much more than just going to church every so often. It means, literally, your whole life gets turned upside down. Because when you become a Christian, you're leaving one way of living and you're coming into a whole 
new way of life, and you have to embrace a completely new set of beliefs and priorities and values and practices. And so what we're learning here from Matthew as he writes this gospel is that the kingdom of heaven has broken into human history in Jesus. Um, It's a spiritual reality that we can enter into now, right now, through faith and repentance. And today we celebrate Jesus' resurrection from the dead. There's a line in an Andrew Peterson song that says, "With, with the very first breath he breathed on that Sunday morning, he shattered death. I mean, what we celebrate when we celebrate the resurrection is that when Jesus came out of the tomb, a whole new world was born. And we really believe that. In the Jesus Storybook Bible, which many of you have and read to your children, it's just so fascinating. Mary runs away from the empty tomb as she comes to to bring spices to anoint him and prepare him for his burial. She runs away when she sees the empty tomb. And here's how... Uh, the writer of that, that children's Bible says that she, she says, it seemed to her that morning almost as if the whole world had been made anew, almost as if the whole world was singing for joy. The trees, the tiny sounds in the grass, the birds, her heart. Was God really making everything sad come untrue? Was he really making even death come untrue? And the answer is yes. Yes. And yet, just look around. I mean, we, we celebrate that, but look around for just a minute and you'll see that there's so much that still needs to be brought under the rule of Jesus. So much pain and despair and sin that needs to be dealt with and healed. And so even though the kingdom of heaven has broken into the world and Jesus, it has not yet fully come. And the stories the gospel tells us are that after his resurrection, Jesus spent 40 days with his disciples, teaching them about what it was going to be like when he left. And then we're told he ascended back into heaven to be at the right hand of his Father in heaven to rule over the universe, leaving the church on the earth to carry out his mission in his absence. And as he went away, we're told he promised that he would come again. And when he came again, it would be to finally, once and for all, make things right, to do away with sin forever, to heal everything that's broken in us and in human community as a whole, to finally, finally make everything sad come untrue forever. The Bible says that when he comes, he comes to judge. That The final act of human history will be a great judgment. And part of what Jesus must do in order to finally and fully redeem his people and the creation is to judge sin and evil and do away with it. And it's that judgment, it's that coming judgment when he comes again that Jesus is referring to in this scene in the Sermon on the Mount. He says in verse 22, you'll see there, On that day, many will say to me. Now what day is he talking about? He's talking about the day that is coming when every single one of us in this room will stand before God's judgment throne and he will demand an accounting of of our lives. And it's my job as your friend and as a pastor to get you ready for that day. And so let me ask you a question this morning. What will you appeal to on the day when God judges you? What will you appeal to? What do you say to him? In this passage, there are three different kinds of approaches that represent three different kinds of people, three different kinds of approaches to God that represent three different kinds of people in the room this morning. And here they are, and they're just the three points in the outline that's on the back of the Scripture passage page you have there. There are those, first, who have faith but no works. They have faith but no works, and that's what that means is is they don't really have faith. 
second kind of person are those who have works but no faith, and those really aren't good works. And then the third kind of person are those who have both faith and works. So those who have faith but no works, those who have works but no faith, and then thirdly, those who have both faith and works. Those are the three, three kinds of approaches to God I want us to look at this morning as quickly as we can uh, that represent three different kinds of people who have come here this morning. So let's just begin here uh, with those who have faith but no works. Look at verse 21. Jesus mentions the first kind of approach to God when he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Uh, these are people verse 26, who hear Jesus' words and do not do them. They are people who think that obedience to Jesus is optional. They typically think of religion as a four-letter word. They don't like to be told they have to do certain things. Self-expression is their ultimate value. They say things like, and this happens all over our culture, well, that's nice for you, but really, it doesn't really work for me. Well, you know, for me... I mean, this is my generation. I mean, this, this is my generation. And, I, and I'll be honest with you. I had two grand, grandfathers that served in World War II, and I'm convinced that if our grandparents, the ones that endured the Great Depression and fought World War II, if they could, I, I believe with all of my heart, they would come back from the dead and kick our butts because we're such pansies. I, I believe it. You know, we're so soft. We talk about duty. This is my generation. We talk about duty and obligation as if they're the plague to be avoided at all costs. Uh, and so these are people who just, just see it, their life's goal, just kind of self-expression, self-definition, individualism, you know, my own kind of take on things. And it comes in different expressions. There's the complete pagan who just doesn't believe in God at all and thinks, you know, there's not going to be a judgment day. That, that stuff's just, that's lies, that's misrepresentations of the truth, that, you know, there's never going to be a day when I have to account for my life. And then there are also those, but what's funny is there are those who come into the church and start to figure out grace and realize, you know, it's not my works that relate me to God. It's his grace. Well, if it's grace, then, hey, get, I, I, I can do whatever I want to. And that's just not the case. And it's interesting, the people Jesus' story he uses here, they make the profession there again in verse 21. They say, Lord, Lord. I mean, that means they're orthodox in their beliefs. But the issue Jesus has is that their faith has no bearing on the way they live. They hear, but they don't practice. They have faith, but no works, which is not really faith. And I just want to say the church is full of these kind of people because Christianity, it's so weird, has become, has become just another way of branding yourself. You know, another kind of self-expression. I mean, people, and I can tell you as a pastor, people walk into church all the time, and, and the one thing they're committed to is they absolutely demand that you make no demands on them. And if you do, they'll just pack up and go down the street to someone who won't. There's absolutely no expectation of obedience, but here we read, it's not just enough to make a claim to believe in him. There has to be a firm commitment to obedience. There has to be fruit. It's interesting to me that 75% of Americans call themselves Christians, and 60% of those claim that their Christianity has, quote-unquote, significantly influenced their lives, and yet the divorce rate in the church is exactly the same as in society as, as a whole, and in some cases higher. Christians live in unforgiveness. When Jesus commands us to forgive, we hoard our money and spend it on ourselves when he's told us to give it away to the poor. I mean, what Jesus wants us to see here is that to become a Christian involves an unquestioned yielding of your entire life to the demands of Jesus. 
It means to have faith that proves itself in acts of worship and love. Uh, Dallas Willard, <clears throat> who's a professor at the University of Southern California, he writes, and this, just, this is just, it's funny to me, but it's tragic at the same time. He says, the fact is that there are, is lacking a serious expectation and intention to bring Jesus' people into obedience through training. To illustrate this, he says this. Listen to this. He says, imagine, if you can, discovering in your church bulletin an an announcement of a six-week seminar on how to genuinely bless someone who's spitting on you. Or suppose the announced seminar was on how to live without purposely indulging lust or covetousness. Or on how to quit condemning the people around you. Or on how to be free of anger and all its complications. He says, imagine also a, a guarantee that at the end of the seminar, those who have participated will actually be able to do it. Now listen to this. He says, when you teach your children or adults to ride a bicycle or swim, they actually do ride bikes or swim. You don't teach them they ought to ride bicycles. You don't teach them that it would be good for them to ride bicycles or that they should be ashamed if they don't. You teach them to ride bikes. So he says, imagine driving by a church with a large sign in front that says, we teach all who seriously commit themselves to Jesus how to do everything he said to do. on driving. It sounds crazy, right? But it's what Jesus expects. Matthew 28, 18, 19, and 20. Go into the world and teach them what? To obey all that I have commanded you. It's what he expects. It's not enough just to say you believe in him. There has to be fruit. Because faith with no works is not a real faith. And look at verse 26 and 27. Here's, here's the analogy he uses to describe this. He says... That, that if you listen and don't obey, it's like building your house on, a sand, on, on sand. And when the rains come, it just begins to crumble. And what I want to say to you, Jesus has come to give us abundant life. He made us. He knows how we work. And we ignore his commands at our own peril. He says to hear and to put into practice his teachings is like trying to build a house on a sinkhole. It doesn't work. And the Bible teaches us, that our sin has resulted in us being both guilty and ruined. Guilty and ruined. We're guilty. We owe a debt to God because of our sin that we cannot pay. We stand before him condemned in our sin, but we're also ruined. Sin has ruined us. It has violated God's design. That's what it is. It's a violation of the design of God. It's trying to live contrary to the way we work. We've been made to worship him and to love him with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength and to love one another sacrificially and to live selfishly, to live autonomously. It's not what we were made for. It doesn't work. Your life will fall apart. That's what Jesus is saying. But he's also saying that he can teach you how to really live. He can give you the life you most desire. He can bring health and vibrancy and fortitude into your life so that when the storms of life are unleashed against you, you don't fall apart. You ignore his commands at your own peril. But notice also there, verses 26 and 27, the language of judgment. It's there. If you come before him, he says, on the day of judgment, and you think that a nod to his existence is enough to gain you access into the kingdom of heaven, you will be swept away by the storm of his wrath. He says, every tree, verse 19, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. If you're not a Christian and you're here, we want you to know that we believe hell is real that it is an unending, unquenchable agony and despair. And it waits those who do not yield and submit their lives to the one who's created them. 
So I want to ask you a question. Have you turned your life over to Jesus? Is your faith in Jesus Christ? If it is, is it a faith that's being proven through obedience, heart obedience to all of his commands, or is it a faith without works? See, those are the, those are the ones that have faith but no works. But there's a second kind of person here, and it's the person that he describes as the one who has works but no faith. Now, I need to issue you a warning because it would be easy for you to listen and hear me just calling you to religion, to think that what you've got to do is to get out there and work really hard and follow the rules and say the right things and come to church a lot and and do all the things you're supposed to so that when you stand before Jesus on Judgment Day, he'll look at your life and he'll he'll see how wonderful you are and he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. But that's not Christianity either. That's just religion. See, here's the mistake we make. A Christian is not a good person. A Christian's not a bad person. A Christian's a new person. When somebody becomes a Christian, they experience a profound change in the deepest parts of their lives where all their thoughts and motivations and actions stem from, and that's what at the end of the day makes the difference. So Jesus mentions a second kind of approach to God here in verses 22 and 23. And look there with me, that contrast that reality. Verse 22 On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? I mean, this is scary stuff right here. I mean, these are people who think that by being morally virtuous, they can earn their way into the kingdom of heaven. They have works, but no faith. Now, let me explain that. Uh, These people are doing some really wonderful things. They have impressive spiritual resumes. They are prophesying. You see that there? And that just means they're Bible teachers, they're sharing the word of God, they're casting out demons, they're active in ministry, they're doing mighty works. That word is dunamis, which refers to power or energy. So they're effective, their ministries are growing, God is working through them. Let's take a poll, How how many people raised somebody from the dead this week? None of you? Man, we're slacking. I mean, these, you know. But Jesus says there's something amiss. There's something amiss here. Jesus says that on the day of judgment, they'll come to him and they'll present their spiritual resumes to him. And he'll say to them, depart from me, for I never knew you. Now, how in the world could that be? What's going on with that? If those people don't get in, who does? And so we've got to confront this head on. And throughout the latter part of his sermon, Jesus has been contrasting two different kinds of people. He's been doing this the whole time here at the very end. Two different spiritual approaches. He says there are two paths, one that leads to life, one that leads to death. There's two kinds of trees, one that is healthy and bears good fruit, one that is diseased and bears bad fruit. There are two kinds of builders, one who builds on the rock and one who builds on the sand. But here's the key, and here's where I've I've missed this my entire life and not understood what Jesus is trying to teach us. Jesus is not saying that one is the good people and one is the bad people. He's not contrasting good people, moral people, with immoral people, bad people. Jesus is contrasting Christians with religious people. Being a Christian and being religious are two different things. Christianity is not religion. And Jesus has been showing throughout this sermon that there are two different kinds of people who can do the very similar things, the same things, but, but be doing them for different motivations and reasons and with very different results in their character. So he said, and we can recap for just a minute, he said, don't, don't pray like the hypocrites because they go out into the middle of the street and stand where everybody can see them and they pray these long, eloquent, eloquent prayers because they think 
that it garners them praise from other people and maybe God will hear them because they, they say all these beautiful words and God will, wow, I, they are so impressive. I'm going to listen to them. Jesus says, don't be like, don't be like those who go and they give alms, but they do it. And it's so amazing in, in chapter six. He says they do it to get glory. They do it in such a way that, that people around them see, wow, look at how generous he is. Isn't he a great guy? Look at all that money he's given away. And he says there's, there, there are religious hypocrites that do these things to get glory in the doing of them. Now, religious people, therefore, according to Jesus, are people who on the inside have no sense of their own glory or worth or value or weight. And so they go out into the world and they do good things. They help people. They care for the poor. They, they counsel with people. They, they build houses for people. They do all these things in order to make a name for themselves. They do it to, to earn a glory so that, that they so desperately need. In other words, a religious person is a person that's empty on the inside and is doing everything to try to fill the emptiness. There's no faith. There's no inner assurance of Jesus' love and acceptance. All of their busyness, all of their moral strivings in their life are an attempt to earn God's love, attempt to build a moral record, a spiritual resume that will garner them acceptance. You see, they think, they think it's their moral record that makes them love-worthy. Which is why on the day of judgment, look there, their appeal is to their own moral record. Do you see that? They, they did not say, they, they say, here's what they say, did we not? Did we not cast out demons? Did we not prophesy? You see, their hope is in themselves. And Jesus goes after and he says, I, I never knew you. I mean, they are so impressed with themselves. It, it, this is the way Jesus means for this to be read. Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons? Did we not do good works? And Jesus says, I never knew you. All of their religious activity was apart from an intimate relationship with him. They were not engaging with Jesus. They were just out there trying to make a name for themselves. And the consequence of this is is quite frightening, to be honest with you. It means there's going to be a lot of people, a lot of very good people, a lot of very religious people, a lot of people with impressive spiritual resumes who are in for a horrible surprise on Judgment Day. Jesus doesn't save hypothetical sinners. And if you're still trying to earn his love through your moral performance, instead of resting in his grace, if you're doing good deeds to be seen and to get glory and to make a name for yourself, then be careful. Be careful that when you stand before him on judgment day, he doesn't say to you, depart from me. You see, that's, that's what we understand hell is. Hell, uh, hell is being separated eternally from God. And if you can't get a sense, I got a sense of that this week. My sister and her husband who are very good friends of ours, every year we have to say goodbye to them for about six months and they go to live in Atlanta and then they come back for six months in the off season. But just the sadness of loving somebody and wanting to be around them and, and, and enjoying spending life with them and then realize for six months I'm going to be without them. Now can you imagine the most beautiful, the most glorious, the one that you were created to worship and love forever and ever and ever, having to live forever and ever and ever apart from him. That's hell. And what Jesus is trying to teach us, Jesus is saying Christians are different from both irreligious and religious people. They know that when they stand before the judgment seat, there's only one good appeal to make. That you can't appeal to your ignorance or your good intentions. You can't appeal to your spiritual resume either. If you do either one of those things, you'll hear him say, depart from me. And so the third kind of person then is the, is the person who really has believed in Jesus and has both 
faith and works. See, a Christian knows that the one appeal that will grant him access is not, did I do so-and-so? It's not, did I do? Did I not do? Here's the appeal. The appeal on that day is, Jesus, did you not? Did you not do? Did you not come into the world to save sinners? Did you not live in perfect submission to your Father, Father's will so that all who believe in you might be counted righteous? Did you, Jesus, did you not suffer and die in my place? Did you not bear the wrath of God that was mine to bear? Did you not suffer the hell that was mine to suffer? Did you not rise on the third day so that I might rise with you into newness of life? If you're a Christian, that's your hope. That's your appeal. That's where you go on that day. See, a Christian knows that it's only through the gospel that we can stand in right relationship with God. And the truth of the gospel is the only right approach to God. And here's what I mean by the gospel. Here's the gospel. The gospel is that when Jesus hung upon the cross on Good Friday, he felt his father departing from him. That was the horror of the cross. Not the nails, not the crown of thorns, not the shame, not the nakedness. As Jesus hung on the cross in our place and became sin for us, the father left him. He turned away from him. And Jesus in that moment heard in his soul, depart from me. And he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, our sins were credited to Jesus and the father left him so that Jesus' righteousness might be credited to us and we might have his love. Jesus heard in his soul, depart from me so that we might hear in our soul, welcome child. Come into your inheritance. That's the gospel. You see, to believe in Jesus means you stop trying to make yourself righteous because the Bible says you died with him. God considers your sins as forgiven as if you had died on the cross to pay for them yourselves. He looks at you and delights in you as if you had done everything that Jesus had done. Build your life on him. Dwell in him. Hide in him. That's wise. That's the wise thing to do because it's the only thing that will grant you access into the kingdom of heaven on the great day of judgment. And if you're still not sure, And if you're still not convinced of all of this, here's the reason why it is wise for you to put your faith in Jesus and follow him. You ready? He's alive. Right? I mean, can I? I know it's a Presbyterian church. Can we try that again? Ready? Q. He's alive. Amen. Exactly. He's not dead. He's risen. And the resurrection of the, of the Son was the Father's vindication of the Son. Jesus is He who, who, who has come back from the dead. He's accomplished what He came in the world to accomplish. He is who He said He is. And the resurrection is the final testimony to this fact. Jesus is not in the tomb. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He is in heaven at the right hand of the Father, ruling over human history to accomplish his sovereign purposes, and he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. Look to him to save you. Build your life on him. And I just want to say to you this morning as we close, the issue of obedience is not irrelevant. I mean, faith and discipleship are not two different things. They are the same. He did not come to die the death we should have died only. He came also to live the life we should have lived. Because he came not just, remember, to address our guilt by dying on the cross for our sins. He also came to address our ruin. He came to make us whole. He came to put our lives back together again. He came to bring eternal life. Not 
way off in the future someday. No, he came so that we might enter into eternal life now, right now. And therefore, Jesus says, it's foolish not to listen to him and obey. It's just foolish. He says, if you obey him and make him the foundation of your whole life, if you build your whole life on him, then nothing can touch you. No matter how fierce the storm, no matter how desperate your circumstances, you will stand. On the great day, when you stand before God, you will stand if he is your refuge. But even now, even as you live as a pilgrim in this world, no matter how desperate it gets, no matter how fierce the storm becomes, you will stand. And again, here's why. The Bible says that if you believe in him, then the power of God, (laughs) the same power which raised Christ Jesus from the dead will come into your life and, and breathe life into your deadness and energize you towards good works. The promise of the gospel is that Jesus died so that we could be forgiven and reconciled to the Father. But, hang on, but also that he was raised from the dead so that we might be raised with him to walk in a new life in the power of the Holy Spirit. One more thing I want you to try to get your head around before I close. Just try to get your head around this. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, then because he was raised from the dead, then when you die, God will raise you up to be with him forever. We believe that. But listen to this. If you are genuinely a Christian, if your faith is genuinely in Jesus Christ, then because he is risen from the dead, I want you to hear this. You've already been raised. Paul says we are seated with him in heavenly places. Seated, present, seated. You are raised. There's a spiritual resurrection that took place in your life when you believed in him. You've become a new person with a new heart, with new motivations and new desires, and that's what makes the difference. That's where the power for obedience, for fruit-bearing comes from. That's what produces the good fruit. And that experience of grace, that close identification with Jesus so that you die in his death and find new life in his resurrection is what will grant you access to the kingdom of heaven both now and on that day. Is your faith in Jesus Christ? Are you resting in him alone? Or are you still trying to earn a place for yourself in the kingdom through your own moral achievements? Are you just religious? Do you have faith? Excuse me, do you have works but no faith? Is your faith active? Can you look into your life and see how the power of the resurrection is at work in you? Are you a good person? Or are you a new person? Do you have faith? But no works. Or, when he died, did you die? And when he is risen, did you rise with him? Is your hope, ultimate hope, in confidence, not in yourselves, not that there's not going to be a day, not in yourself, and on that day you'll be able to point to your spiritual resume, is he your heart's greatest hope and greatest confidence? Because that, that's what makes somebody truly a believer in Jesus Christ. And so let's pray this morning as we just continue to meditate on those things. Lord Jesus, would you come As we um, continue in this service this morning to worship you, would you come and meet with us? Would you come and continue to call us to yourself? Would you come and work in us both faith and good works that we might be proven to be those who truly have believed in you and follow after you? And would you come and give us confidence, confidence this morning that on the day of judgment when we stand before the Father, 
terrifying in his wrath that we have nothing to fear because you will stand up on that day and speak in our, on our behalf that you will stand up and point to yourself and say, this one belongs to me. As we share this meal together this morning, would you help us prepare our hearts for that day? Uh, come and draw near to us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, in response to what we have read together this morning and listened to proclaimed in God's word, I'm going to ask that you would stand with me and as an act of faith um, and and responding to the grace that is ours in a way of just rehearsing the story that we've come to celebrate this morning together, recite the Apostles' Creed with me. And so I ask you, Christians, in an age of unbelief, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day, He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. It is fitting that we would celebrate this meal together on the weekend when we celebrate Jesus Christ's passion, his sacrificial death and resurrection. On Thursday night, before his arrest, trial, and crucifixion, Jesus instituted this meal to be a lasting ordinance among his followers until his second coming. He graciously provided this meal as a means of bestowing grace upon us and strengthening our faith. It nourishes us. His body and blood are spiritual food for our souls, and it teaches us, it shows us what a life of love looks like and encourages us to take up our own cross and follow him. Two points of application as we come to this meal this morning, and then some instruction that from a pastoral concern that we not eat unworthily this morning. First, application number one, just a truth. Jesus said that the ultimate condemnation would be to hear the Father say to us, depart from me, I never knew you. Now, if the ultimate loss you can experience is to lose him, then that means that he's the thing you've always been looking for no matter who you are. Listen to the way a pastor and Tim Keller in New York City says it. He says, he's the love you've been looking for in every pretty face, in every sweet set of lips, in every embrace. He's the beauty you've been looking for in every piece of art, in every piece of music, the thing you've always longed for all of your life, the thing you've wanted in all of your wantings, the thing you've sought in all of your seekings, the thing you've loved in all of your lovings. Jesus says, it was me. You've been looking for me. Whether you know it or not, you were after me. And I just wonder, do you know that? Do you know that? And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, it's him you're looking for, put your faith in him. If, you're, if you are a Christian, ask him to settle your heart with that thought as we share this meal together. But then a second, second just, just application, and this time a question. I mean, if you want to know the degree to which you've come to really believe that he is the beauty you've been looking for, then ask this question of yourself. How does he affect you? Are you affected by him? When Jesus finished his sermon, the crowds, were told there in verse 28, were astonished. Uh, It's a strange word that basically means they could not contain their feelings about him. If you read the Gospels, there are just really three responses to Jesus. People either, number one, were terrified and ran away from him, 
Or number two, they hated him and wanted to kill him. Or number three, they worshipped him and fell down and gave him everything they had. But boredom, apathy, I mean, if you feel nothing, it's a red flag. And you should ask God to use this meal this morning to break through your hard heart and to help you really see Jesus dying for you and rising again. Now, as we come to this meal together this morning, two points of self-examination that we ask you to enter into. The first is just this, that this is a meal that belongs to Jesus. It's his table, not Church of the Redeemer's table, not our denomination's table. And I realize there are people here at all different levels of commitment to him, but we believe that this is a meal only to be taken by those who have put their faith in Jesus. So is your faith in Jesus Christ? If so, we invite you to come and partake of this meal. If not, I will be here, Jonathan will be here after the service. You can call our office, come and talk with us and settle settle the the state of your soul as you prepare yourself to stand before him one day and then come back another another month and we'll celebrate this meal together. But if your faith is in him, we invite you to come. But then just a second, second point of instruction, and that is this is a meal where we celebrate his body broken and his blood shed to reconcile us to the Father. We have been reconciled because of his death in our place and therefore we eat this meal to celebrate that reconciliation it would therefore be great hypocrisy for us to celebrate being reconciled to the Father if there was a need for us to be reconciled to one another. And so if there's a relationship where there's reconciliation that needs to happen, the Scripture is very clear. You are commanded to go first deal with your brother and then come back to the altar. So those are just two points of self-examination that we ask you to intend to do as you prepare your heart to come and share this meal with us today. Now, here's the way this is going to work, and I need you to listen because there's about 100 people more than we're used to having here this morning, okay? So this is going to be messy. Hang in there. It's okay. Uh, We're going to ask that you come down the center aisle. There's going to be four stations of people here at the front, two on this side and two on this side. Come down the center aisle, take, take the elements, return to your seats on the outside. Once everybody has been served, then we will all eat the meal together. So come this way, Head back that way. If, go to whoever's available, and we'll get through it as fast as we can, okay? Um, this is uh, the table of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, on the night on which Jesus was betrayed, before he went to his cross, having dinner with his disciples, he took bread and he said, This is my body, which is broken for you. And after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood shed for you. Take, eat, and drink. And as you do so, remember me. And in doing so, you proclaim my death until I come. Uh, Let's pray together this morning as we prepare our hearts to come to his table. And if you're helping me serve, I'd ask that you come on forward. Lord Jesus, we are astounded when we stop to think about your provision, how you have so graciously provided all things that we need, that you have not left us to try to figure out how to make a way to the Father on our own, that you came all the way from heaven to earth to show us and to do it for us and to provide a way for us. And so we now come to your table to celebrate what we've been celebrating all weekend, your body broken for us and your blood shed for us. Help us to remember your death. But also help us to remember that you are now the Lamb of God who stands in the throne room of heaven 
who the angels and the living creatures and the elders surround, singing, worthy, 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 worthy is the Lamb who is slain. And so may we enter into their worship as we take your body and your blood to our lips. Would you come and break our hard hearts? Would you come and create astonishment in us as well, that you might be glorified and that you might bear fruit in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, taking his body, taking the bread together, celebrate that this is his body broken for you. And taking the cup, consider and celebrate this is his blood shed for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, did you not? Did you not sacrifice yourself? Did you not shed your own blood? Did you not? Offer your body to be broken and bruised in our place. Did you not die and go to hell as we should have and rise with the keys of hell in your hand and be risen over triumphant over death in the grave? Did you not ascend to your Father's right side? That is our hope and that is our prayer. And that is where we anchor our life. So come. Make the truth of the gospel more and more real to us as we continue to celebrate together this morning and throughout this day. And we pray in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. It is our custom on Communion Sundays to take an offering specifically for the needs of the poor in our city. Uh, We call it a mercy offering. So the men are going to come if you guys would do that. Uh, And as they come, um, I would like to let you know about a couple of things as by way of announcement. And so if you just bear with me, they're going to go ahead and do that, and then we're going to be done. Um, one of the things that we understand, and a lot of you are new to our church this morning, we realize um, there's so much that we believe Christianity calls us to as his people that we can't accomplish in this room together on Sundays. And so uh, one of the things that we really, really emphasize as a church is the need to get plugged into a community group. And so if you're not here this morning... Um, and you are interested at all in getting into a small group of people uh, that are intimately connected and involved in one another's lives that are really trying to work out and wrestle through the reality of the gospel and what that looks like as we live in community with one another. Uh, We meet in large group for corporate worship on Sundays. We meet in homes in small groups, and that was the pattern of the New Testament church. It's our pattern as well. If you're interested in community groups, which I would encourage you uh, to do so, you can come see me or Jonathan Uh, or just about anybody who's been around um, for a while, and they can connect you to somebody who can help you with that. But but thank you again uh, for being here and, and worshiping with us this morning. Terry? Amen. He is the risen King of glory. Amen. The risen Lamb who was slain and who is worthy of all worship and honor and glory and power. Uh, If your faith is in him, that on that great day when you go to meet with God to settle accounts, the Lamb will be there and he will stand and say, this one belongs to me and you will be covered by his blood and the verdict will come over your life. Well done, good and faithful servant. But I want to say to you, you don't have to wait for that day for the verdict to come. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, then today, 
today, because of his body broken for you and his blood shed for you, you stand righteous before the Father in him. You stand holy, you stand completed, you stand whole in the Father's eyes. And the promise of that verdict is in these words of the benediction. So receive them as just that, as the Father's good words over you. Again, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, then may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace and celebrate today.